Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services last week released a proposed rule in an attempt to alleviate regulatory burdens on certain Medicare providers. Among those are critical access hospitals, community health organizations, and hospice. Reporting our lead story this morning is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. As the floodwaters from Florence recede, new issues are coming to the surface. It could have a long-term negative impact on Medicaid beneficiaries. Marvin Mitchell has that report later in the broadcast. Also on today's Monitor Monday, health care attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risk business. Whistleblower attorney Mary Inman reports on the recent lawsuit involving United Healthcare, And Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. As you heard here over and over again, the comment period closed on the proposed changes to the way physicians get paid by Medicare on September 10th. And we thought that would lead to a period of relative quiet on the regulatory front. But boy, were we wrong. Last week, in a surprise move, CMS released a new proposed rule entitled Regulatory Provisions to Promote Program Efficiency, Transparency, and Burden Reduction. And in this rule, CMS made proposals which, true to the name, actually will reduce the burden on providers. One of the most interesting provisions relates to the outpatient surgery world. CMS is proposing to no longer require a comprehensive history and physical on all patients undergoing surgery, instead allowing hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers to develop policies regulating which patients and which surgeries require an H&P, and then and which simply require a pre-surgical assessment. In their discussion, they cite the robust, excuse me, robust literature that demonstrates that there's absolutely no benefit to a pre-op H&P for a cataract surgery. As long as the patient has a cataract and is alive, they can undergo that surgery. Yet every year, the 1 million patients who have that surgery are required to see a doctor for that H&P, costing Medicare almost $100 million with millions more spent on worthless pre-op EKGs and labs. As an internist, I was frustrated that I had to do these exams, subjecting patients to unnecessary cost and inconvenience simply because of an outdated regulation. By the way, this also applies to other simple surgeries, such as hernia repair and arthroscopy. CMS has also proposed to no longer require ambulatory surgery centers to have written transfer agreements with a hospital. If a patient's having surgery at a surgery center and they require transfer to a hospital, CMS notes that EMTALA will apply, so an agreement is not necessary. They've also noted that some surgery centers were having difficulty getting an agreement since they were competing with the hospital, funneling away well-paying patients and surgeries. More controversial, though, is a proposal to no longer require doctors who perform surgeries at a surgery center to have admitting privileges at a hospital. 
Once again, CMS cited competition as the motivation with reports of hospitals being unwilling to grant admitting privileges to doctors who would be using the competing surgery center. The issue here is that if a problem developed that did require hospital care, it would certainly seem like a good idea that that the doctor would be able to take care of their patient at the hospital. In fact, from a medical liability issue, that doctor should should want to take care of their patients. Instead, the on-call physician will be asked to care for the patients, and no physician likes to be forced to take care of a competitor's patient. So you can imagine that the physician in that situation might inadvertently criticize the care the patient received, increasing liability risk. This could also mean that some specialists, like ophthalmologists, who mainly practice in the office and surgery center, may choose to leave staff completely, leaving the hospital without specialists to take care of their hospitalized patients. Um, The comments on this rule should be very interesting, and I'm sure we'll hear more. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now for the latest hot topics of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. Well, no sooner had Monitor Monday signed off last Monday uh, with live reports from all of the areas ravaged by Hurricane Florence than the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services published a notice that it intended to ease emergency preparedness regulatory burdens. Dr. Hirsch captioned the name of that proposed rule. And in proposing these um, ease of regulations for emergency preparedness, CMS clarified they were continuing to ensure that facilities maintain access to service during emergencies, provide safety for patients, safeguard human resources, maintain business continuity, and protect physical resources. Here's a quick rundown of their proposed modifications. On the emergency program, CMS proposes to give facilities the flexibility to review their emergency program every two years or more often at their own discretion rather than annually. Under the emergency plan, CMS proposes eliminating duplicative requirement that the emergency plan include documentation of efforts to contact local, tribal, regional, state, and federal emergency preparedness officials and document their participation in collaborative and cooperative planning efforts. CMS said that regulation is covered elsewhere. On training for inpatient facilities, they're proposing to increase the flexibility for the testing requirement so that one of the two annually required testing exercises may be an exercise of the facility's choice. And testing for outpatient suppliers They're proposing to revise the requirement for facilities to conduct two testing exercises to one annually. And many of our listeners will recall when this proposed uh, emergency preparedness rule came out and it was finalized a number of years ago that it applied to all 17 facility types. Many facility types are small providers like rehab agencies, corps, uh, community mental health centers, ambulatory surgery centers, and whatnot. And perhaps they might benefit the most from the easing of burdens. CMS is looking for comments on this. So please, if this affects you, reply. And now this time we call on our poll on targeted probe and educate. We're continuing to get a lot of feedback on that. So we're continuing to probe our listeners. Check number one, if you started round one with targeted probe and educate. Check two, if you started round two. 
check three if you started round three. Check number four if you have no activity yet. And, of course, if it's not applicable to you. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. And coming up at about 90 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Marvin Mitchell, and Mary Inman reporting live from London. This is Monday, it's September 24th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Trusted for more than 50 years, the AMA drives healthcare communication for medical procedures and services. The AMA CPT code set is constantly updated by the AMA CPT editorial panel with insight from clinical and industry experts. It reflects the latest innovations in healthcare and helps to improve the delivery of care. The AMA store offers a full line of products to address CPT, HCPCS, ICD-10 coding, reimbursement, practice management, impairment, HIPAA, and electronic health records. To purchase these products and more, visit amastore.com. We're back, and a program note, now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast subscription program. You and your team and other department teams will have the latest information to help them remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So last week I talked about Incident 2 services in the clinic. Today we'll do hospitals, where the rules are less restrictive in some ways, but more restrictive in others. Now, some of you astute folks are thinking, but you can't do Incident 2 in the hospital. And that's half right. The professional services Incident 2 um, don't work in the hospital. But for better or well, I, I would say for worse, Medicare has used the term Incident 2 to describe the supervision of therapeutic and professional services provided in the hospital. So imagine a disgruntled employee asserts that the organization owes millions of dollars because there's insufficient supervision of some of your outpatient hospital services. You've provided chemotherapy, but there wasn't a specific doctor of the day on the record. So um, this hospital employee, convinced that you need to have a specific physician supervising each service, asserts that you have to refund money for all of the chemotherapy drugs provided. Do you? The answer is a resounding no, but it's also complicated. So CMS treats therapeutic and diagnostic services differently, the first source of complication. And I'm going to focus more on therapeutic services today. Many therapeutic services do require direct supervision by a physician. But the way CMS defines direct supervision in the outpatient hospital context is different than the definition used in the clinic context. Medicare Benefit Policy Manual Chapter 6, 20.5.2, describes that for therapeutic services, that are provided inside the hospital, direct supervision means the physician or non-physician practitioner must be present on the same campus where the services are being furnished. Now, for some period of time, CMS had different levels of supervision required off-campus versus on-campus, but that's now changed and it's uniform and consistent um, whether you're on or off-campus. So, um, the regulation, 42 CFR 410.27, makes things consistent. Whoever is supervising the services must be immediately available to furnish assistance and direction throughout the procedure. 
I would emphasize, however, there's no need to identify the supervising physician in advance. As long as there's a supervisor geographically present, it's proper to bill the service. In a strange twist, the manuals also require that the supervising physician be able to step in and take over the service. This provision does not appear in the regulation, and it's more restrictive um, than the manual instructions for clinic services. Now, since this requirement isn't in the regulations, its validity is definitely subject to challenge. In short, the geographic requirements in the hospital are more flexible in the clinic than in, than in the clinic because the presence somewhere on campus rather than in the office suite is sufficient. But CMS would assert that there are more restrictions on the physician's expertise in the hospital. In the clinic, any physician can supervise. The manuals assert that in the hospital, only a physician who can take over may supervise. Now, I want to reemphasize that the brand memo calls into question the validity of that, memo, that manual provision, but you need to know it's there. Now, for most services, non-physician practitioners, including NPs, PAs, and clinical nurse specialists, certified midwives, and clinical psychologists, licensed social workers, and the like, can supervise the service. But for cardiac and pulmonary rehab, only a physician can provide the direct supervision. Now, Chuck, I don't know why birds suddenly appear every time you are near, but when it comes to supervisees in the hospital, they want to be close to you, but not as close as in the clinic. Somewhere on the premises should be good enough. Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Just like me, they long to be close to you close to you back to you thanks David very much that was healthcare attorney David Glazer David is a shareholder of the law firm of Federation of Byron in downtown Minneapolis United Healthcare is back in the news. This time it's being named in a lawsuit involving Medicare Advantage. Nationally recognized whistleblower Mary Inman has the details. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. On September 7th, in federal district court in D.C., in a case in which the Medicare Advantage organizations and the United Health Group family of companies sued Alex Azar, the secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services, a federal judge vacated a single CMS rule the 2014 overpayment rule. In much of the reporting that has followed since, many of the Medicare Advantage organizations have vastly overblown the significance of this decision and its impact on the series of False Claims Act cases currently being pursued against them by the Department of Justice and multiple whistleblowers in courts throughout the United States for alleged risk adjustment fraud. Contrary to the MAO's protestations, however, the sky is not falling and the risk adjustment fraud cases remain very much intact. First, a quick overview of the Medicare Advantage program and risk adjustment to put this case in context. Medicare Advantage, or Medicare Part C, is a program where individuals who are otherwise eligible for traditional Medicare can choose to be covered by a private insurer. CMS pays the private insurer premiums for taking risk off of the government's hands. How much premium is paid to an MA plan is determined by a beneficiary's demographics and by their health status. 
For health status, certain diagnosis codes track to 79 hierarchical chronic conditions, or HCCs. Each HCC is a broad disease category that CMS has determined to accurately predict future healthcare costs. The demographic factors, as well as the HCCs, have coefficients associated with them. Those coefficients are added up to result in a risk score. A risk score is then multiplied by that by the by the plan bid to cover a hypothetical average beneficiary, and that amount of money is paid to the MAO in monthly installments. For example, in 2014, the risk coefficient for an 81-year-old woman living in the community was 0.539. If she was also diagnosed with chronic hepatitis and congestive heart failure, the risk score would be increased by 0.5. 0.251 and 0.368, respectively. The resulting risk score would be the sum of all of those, 1.158. If the plan bid 10000 the MAO would be paid $11,580 in monthly installments. The rule at issue in this case, known as the 2014 overpayment rule, defined as an overpayment any payment based on a diagnosis code submitted to the MA plan and not supported by an underlying medical record. Under the 2014 overpayment rule, an overpayment is identified if an MAO knew of the false code or should have determined through the exercise of reasonable diligence that it had received an overpayment. This knowledge standard was found to be different than that under the False Claims Act, which requires actual knowledge or reckless disregard. By finding that MAOs acting based on mere negligence can violate the overpayment rule, the judge here held that the 2014 overpayment rule cannot be a basis for False Claims Act liability and must be struck down. Medicare Advantage organizations are attempting to use this decision as a barrier to liability in the false claims that cases where they are alleged to have committed risk adjustment fraud. However, in the ruling here, the judge merely struck down a single apparently flawed rule that most of the existing Part C false claims that cases don't rely on and barely make mention of. As the judge here noted, United Health does not contend that Medicare Advantage insurers should be permitted knowingly or recklessly to bill CMS for erroneous diagnosis codes. MAOs, even after this ruling, are still liable for knowing or reckless violations of the requirement to submit correct and complete diagnostic data. MAOs and their attorneys that suggest otherwise are trying to hide behind actuarial equivalence and argue that making a complicated mess of the math behind the MA program can excuse plain and simple fraud. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very, very much. That was Mary Inman. Mary was reporting from London. She is a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. Mary is also a member of the Rec Monitor editorial board. And you can read Mary's reporting on this subject in Thursday's edition of the Rec Monitor E-News. There are rising concerns about the long-term negative impact of Florence on Medicaid beneficiaries. Reporting that lead story is Marvin Mitchell. Thanks, Chuck. This morning, I'd like to take a little different tack on what may not be available in the aftermath of Florence. The wildfires in California, the Hurricanes Harvey, Maria, and now Florence demonstrate and present new challenges. The intensity of the fires and the incredible rainfall were far worse risk to life, property, and recovery than the actual precipitating natural disasters would historically indicate. 
people were caught off guard. Experts have suggested this level of destruction is the new normal brought on by prolonged drought and warmer oceans. What are the implications if this is the new normal? New questions arise. How long will it take this time to rebuild? What about my job? What about my business? What about my health coverage? Will the safety net, which includes Medicaid, be there for me if I lose these things? The story of society's most vulnerable gets little attention, but must. I fear this story will involve many, many more. After Harvey, the Texas Gulf Coast instantaneously lost 27,000 jobs. According to FEMA, more than 40% of small businesses never reopen after a disaster, almost entirely because of lack of financing. Health insurance coverage is an early casualty. Providers with reduced revenues, even if temporarily, feel exacerbated pressures from unreimbursed care, especially in the non-Medicaid expansion states. Not my words, but from the providers. After Harvey, payers announced temporary leave to help mitigate some of the revenue flow disruptions. Blue Cross has announced plans to do the same in the aftermath of Florence, but this doesn't pay the insurance premiums or address the resulting lapse in coverage. So the question is, will there be a safety net, i.e. Medicaid? The immediate solution for many is getting care in the ED. Some, of this, some call this a public health crisis, but I predict very soon this will become a population health management challenge. Instead of CHF and COPD, we will be increasingly addressing the effects of the loss of basics for a, long, for a prolonged period of time. Will this type of population health management become the new normal? What will it look like, and how can it be made sustainable? Financing is becoming available for population health, including homelessness, in some states for the Medicaid population, but are still in their infancies. The future becomes unclear if federal dollars decrease. To affect a safe discharge, many providers feel pressure to assist with the supply of medications, finding solutions of where to call home, meals and seasonally appropriate clothing become a task for social workers in EDs and acute settings, mostly unfunded. What if those patients do not qualify for Medicaid in their states? EDs have already seen a leap in non-emergency presentations such as elderly or chronically ill with no place to go, no one to care, and no provider. This discussion needs to take place. Florence continues to be horrendous. Can communities absorb the massive losses? Look at the lingering effects of Katrina and Maria. If, the history, if history means anything, healthcare providers will be called upon to be part of the plan. So what are our disaster plans in the new normal to manage what may well be coming? How will we address the lingering issues? Maybe that's for a future broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Marvin, very much. That was Marvin Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell is the Director of Case Management and Social Services at San Gorgone Memorial Hospital here in Southern California. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, CMS released a proposed rule last week in an attempt to alleviate regulatory burdens on certain Medicare providers. Here now reporting our lead story is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Thank you, Chuck. 
Yes, last week, September 20th, CMS released a new proposed rule in an effort to reduce the regulatory burden on healthcare providers. Now, we've all heard CMS's attempts to increase transparency and decrease burden on and for providers. Usually, it ends up being all talk and no walk. So I wanted to look into this and see exactly how CMS's new proposal purports to make a difference. And very interesting, the proposals fall between or among three different types. The first, that simplify and streamline processes. The second, that reduce the frequency of activities and revise timelines. And the third, that basically just delete obsolete, duplicative, or unnecessary requirements. The first one, simplifying and streamlining processes, goes to ambulatory surgery centers, or ASCs. So ASCs and hospitals have long competed for business. This competition has at times led to hospitals providing outpatient surgical services, refusing to sign written transfer agreements or to grant admitting privileges to physicians performing surgery in an ASC. The new rule is aimed at making it easier for the ACSs to receive and admit patients. Currently, as a condition for coverage, an ASC must have a written transfer agreement and have admitting privileges at the hospital. For going forward, those requirements will be removed. I expect a heavy dose of comments from hospitals regarding this proposed rule. I think that CMS's thought process behind this is that it costs less to perform surgeries in an ASC rather than a hospital, uh, but we will need to see whether or not that is what happens. As for hospice, the federal regulations presently require that hospice staff include an individual with specialty knowledge of hospice medications. The proposed rule eliminates this requirement. This probably came from complaints of high payrolls, is my guess, because specialty is always going to have a higher payroll. For hospitals, the proposed rule is going to allow a hospital that is part of a hospital system consisting of multiple separately certified hospitals to elect to have a unified and integrated quality assessment and performance improvement program for all of its member hospitals. The system governing body will be responsible and accountable for ensuring that each of its separately certified hospitals meets all the requirements of this section. Now, there is fine print as to this, so you definitely need to review that fine print. Going to another section, home health, the proposal from CMS proposes to remove the requirement that home health agencies provide a copy of clinical records to a patient upon request within a day or by the next home visit. Now it will be you can now give the clinical record to the patient within four days. That is alleviating a burden of printing and, and killing trees. Critical access hospitals, they're going to change the requirement or the proposal will to reflect the current medical practice where providers are expected to update their policies and procedures as needed in response to regulatory changes. The current rule requires a CAH, professional personnel, to review its policies at least annually. So this one's going to cut down the need for that review. 
As for swing bed requirements for hospitals and CAHs, the proposed rule is going to remove the cross-reference in the regulations for hospital swing bed providers and for CAH swing bed providers. This will give the resident the right to choose to or refuse to perform services for the facility if they so choose. If the resident works, the facility must document it in the resident's plan of care, noting whether the services are voluntary or paid, and if paid, providing wages for the work being performed at prevailing rates. Now, this new proposal, this new proposed rule, the comment period for this proposed rule ends November 19th, 2018. So please go to the Federal Register to make a formal comment. Thank you, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group, and she's a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board, and you can read Nicole's reporting on this subject in Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor Read News. Nancy, let's take a look at the Monitor Monday listener survey. Look what we have here, Chuck. 32% of our listeners this morning responding to our poll indicated they're in round one. 13% in round two, and let's keep our eye on the 1% that have started round three. 20% no activity yet. Chuck, we're going to continue to report on this story. It's hot. Yeah, it is indeed. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and we're going to thank you very much for starting your week with us. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Ronald Hirsch, MD, Mary Inman, and Marvin Mitchell. We thank you very much for being with us. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday Interact Monitor. Thanks again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.